All right, thanks for joining us, everybody. We are live here. It's Money Talks from the KFVS Digital News Desk. How are you all doing this evening? We're glad to have you here. Got uh, David Yaskevich. He is with the Southeast Missouri State University Department of Accounting, Economics, and Finance. David, how are you this evening? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. We're glad to have you here, and we're glad to um, have the work week out of the way. Uh, now it's um, time for some of that money reflection, some of that uh, look at um, how things have gone this week, how things are in uh, the, the rearview mirror as we're going in and hopefully hopefully getting a nice, uh, maybe a nice Sunday drive for the weekend. I don't know. But uh, hopefully, that, I guess that's the, that would be a nice metaphor for the whole economy in some way. But now I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> as we do look at the economic data um, from the, that surrounds situations like the U.S. Uh, trade deficit, um, what do we see as far as the, the data that's available and, and what kind of in interpretations, what kind of uh, takeaways are there for it? Sure. This week, toward the beginning of the week, we got updated data for the U.S. trade deficit, which is something that I think is a lot of, on a lot of people's minds uh, when we look at trade patterns, uh, not just within the last year or two during the pandemic, where there was some reduction in the volume of trade between United States and other countries and on the globe in general. Uh, and more long term, we could ask about trade patterns and how they evolve and change. Uh, particularly interesting in the last year, you know, we, you, know you mentioned the Sunday drive. There's been some turns in, in the roads the last couple of years uh, in terms of global economic activity and trade in general. But if we were to look at the last year or two, we've seen a fairly strong U.S. dollar compared to other currencies. And that would tend to kind of reduce the exports a country would sell to other uh, countries in the globe and its trading partners. And we've also heard a lot how, despite the uncertainty we hear about economic performance over the next year, and despite some of the... Uh, Hardships are some of the struggles in terms of inflation and higher interest rates in the last year and higher cost of production. We've kind of seen the U.S. economy perform better than other countries in the globe, particularly those in Western Europe and, again, other parts of the globe as well. So if you have an economy where we're seeing a strong domestic currency compared to others, and if we see a fairly stronger growth rate compared to other countries, both of those would kind of predict or lead to a larger or a wider trade deficit. And that's kind of what we saw in the trade deficit numbers from earlier this week. So this, this would have covered the month of December of 2022. So we'd get some idea on the latest month of available data, but we'd also get some uh, closure on what the performance was on an annual basis in the calendar year 2022. So for the year 2022, something that got some headlines this week was that the trade deficit widened to its largest number ever for the United States. Now, keep in mind something. When, when they report that, they're re referring to the dollar size, the dollar amount of the trade deficit, which for last year would have been roughly $948 billion, so almost a trillion. Um, so that's a, that's a fairly large number, but I would just caution 
uh, going with the interpretation that's the, the largest trade deficit ever. And the reason why I would say that is it's not adjusted for the size of the economy or the overall uh, size of U.S. GDP, which would be a more accurate measure if we were to ask how large is the trade deficit compared to the overall size of our economy. That's uh, a pretty sizable, even even though it's the dollar size is, is higher, you know, inflation has something to do that with that as well. I mean, a dollar today is not worth what a dollar was in prior years. But if we were to look at the share of GDP, the current trade deficit for last calendar year would be about 3.8% of our overall economy. That's a fairly sizable trade deficit, but we've seen larger. Uh, the largest we've seen in recent, his recent history uh, would have been uh, the mid-2000s, roughly 2005-2006, would have been about 5.8%. But nonetheless, uh, there has been a widening in the U.S. trade gap. And we kind of expect that, again, with a stronger U.S. dollar, with uh, weaker performance in other countries who are our trading partners. So there's, there's kind of a, a mix of information you get if there's a, a widening trade gap. Uh, it could be a sign of a stronger economy, at least relative to your trading partners, but it could also be a sign of other factors as well that might slow down export production or export sales. So you could have a growth in inputs, imports from stronger economic activity, but there could be other issues as well there. Now, if we were to look at uh, some of the components and uh, some of the areas and, and sectors where we're seeing fairly large exports compared to uh, imports, we would see fuel oil, crude oil, uh, capital equipment like aircraft, engines, vehicles, vehicle parts, uh, and some consumer goods. Those tend to be areas where we export a lot. Now, interestingly, if you look at the report on trade patterns, you'd see a lot of two-way trade. We also import a lot of crude oil and fuel oil. We also import a lot of vehicle and vehicle parts. Um, so uh, there's some interesting components there. But yes, it looks like that uh, we are seeing some widening in the trade gap. Besides the the patterns of trade and besides the actual trade gap, another thing you would want to look at or another trend you would want to look at is what does the overall volume of trade look like? Uh, we've heard some stories in the past year where the volume of trade on a global scale has been down, not just for the U.S., but for other countries as well. And you'd see a little bit of that in the more recent reports of U.S. trade patterns. If you look at the combination of both exports and imports, if you add those up, you'd see over the last year there was a fairly uh, sizable increase by about 16%. So we went from about $6 trillion to $7 trillion worth of overall trade in, in terms of that. So trade has increased in the last year, although if you look at more uh, recent numbers, if we look at the second half of 2022, there was actually some decline in import, imports. So over the last few months of the prior year, we've seen imports decline. And we've also seen some decline in exports over the last quarter, so the last three months of 2022. So that might be something that I would highlight in the reports we're seeing on trade patterns. Uh, you would expect an overall decline in trade activity if we were to see some weakening or slowdown of the economy. And in the last quarter of the year, there was some indication of that, where both imports and exports would have seen some decline toward the end of the year. So that would be some of the takeaways I would say there were from this report on the trade deficit. I would also make a comment that this would not be the uh, 
exhaustive list or the an exhaustive number of categories when it comes to the flow of dollars into and out of a country. So this would just be the trade in goods and services that the United States would have with other countries. This report would not have covered the flow of, say, financial capital uh, in the form of what some would call foreign portfolio investment. So if foreign investors purchase domestic stocks, that, that wouldn't be part of this report. And also foreign direct investment would not be part of this report, where foreign uh, investors, again, may invest in the United States, but it wouldn't be the purchase of financial assets. It would be the purchase of physical assets where capital, machinery, buildings, equipment are acquired. That, that would not be part of this report. So this would be primarily the flow of dollars when we talk about the trade in goods and services. All right. And so we're also looking then um, reports on the federal budget deficit. Does that come from the Congressional Budget Office? What, what, what do we see there as far as those that report uh, accumulating and that data and, and uh, what do we see as the major points of that issue? That, that is correct. That report would come from the Congressional Budget Office and with the discussions of the debt ceiling, um, I'm sure this is something that is quite timely and on, on the minds and on the interest of a lot of people. Uh, the federal budget year, the federal fiscal year begins on October 1st of each year. So what the Congressional Budget Office released this week would have been a report for the first four months of the federal fiscal year. And one of the takeaways from the report that came out from the Congressional Budget Office is that if we compare this period, the first four months of the current fiscal year with the first four months of the prior fiscal year, the overall federal budget deficit also widened uh, by about a magnitude of roughly $200 billion. So if this were to continue over the course of uh, the entire fiscal year that we're currently in, we'll multiply the overall budget deficit by three. Uh, if this were to maintain, now it, it may or may not maintain it, but we'd see uh, an overall budget deficit of about $1.3 trillion. Because right now the current deficit for the first four months would be roughly $459 billion. So that, that's pretty sizable. It's a pretty sizable deficit. Now, if you look at some of the finer points of the report, that came out from the Congressional Budget Office. There were some reasons why there has been this widening in the uh, budget deficit at the federal level. So there would have been some reasons, if we think about a budget, we would have seen some reasons why revenues may have been lower, and we would have seen some reasons why expenditures may have been higher. So there was some uh, slight decline, I would say a 3% decline is what I noticed in the study, in receipts of tax revenue. So there would have been some decline in income and payroll tax uh, revenue received. There would have been some decline in also the corporate income tax revenue that was received. Another noteworthy area where there's a reduction in federal budget revenue, uh, federal government revenue, would have been with respect to uh, payments or actually they would be called remittances that the Federal Reserve would send to the Treasury Department. And there is an area uh, of activity where if banks have reserves with the Federal Reserve, at one of the Federal Reserve's 12 district banks, if a bank has reserves in one of those banks, the Federal Reserve would pay interest on those reserve balances to the banks. Now, as we all know, and if you're a viewer of Money Talks, you certainly know this, interest rates have risen 
over the last year. So these interest payments on reserve balances that the Federal Reserve pays to banks that have reserves at the Federal Reserve District banks, those payments would have increased. Now, if those payments increased, the Federal Reserve would earn a lower amount of profit or revenue over its expenditures. Now, the, the net profit that the Federal Reserve would have would be sent to the Treasury Department each year. It's called a remittance payment to the Treasury. Now, with higher interest rates, there have been fewer net profits for the Federal Reserve, so there have been fewer remittances paid to the Treasury by the Federal Reserve. That's one of the consequences of higher interest rates. And if we were to look at that, that number, uh, would have been of the magnitude of about $35 billion of, of fewer dollars going to the Treasury Department. So between reductions in some of the, the tax revenue and reductions in remittances that the Federal Reserve pays to the Treasury Department, those would have been areas and reasons for the decline on the expenditures or on, on, on the revenue side for the federal government. On the expenditure side, uh, I think it would be no surprise that one of the biggest components of growth in the federal budget would have uh, some relation with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So uh, entitlement programs where the uh, age of, of the population is changing and that could have an impact on the expenditures and other components as well would have to impact Medicaid. But that was one of the larger components where we saw an increase in expenditures within the first four months of the fiscal year. And also going back to interest rates, interest payments on federal debt also increased. There were a lot of other categories, uh, but those might have been some of the highlights I would report or, or note from the CBO's report on the federal budget this week, which again would have looked at the first four months of the current fiscal year. All right. Another new survey taking a look then at consumer sentiment. What 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 are they measuring here in terms of consumer sentiment, and 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 um, and what do we what do we take away there as far as the main points? Right. So the consumer sentiment survey and the indexes that were reported uh, this week from the University of Michigan, they would have indicated some uh, some survey results that may coincide or align with some of the economic data we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. So we've talked about some of the stronger labor market numbers, which you would think would tend to boost consumer sentiment or, or confidence in the economy. Uh, whether it has to do with one's personal finances, whether it has to do with one's uh, current employment prospects and the likelihood of maintaining those employment prospects over time. It also has to do with sentiment towards uh, consumer prices and what our expectations uh, currently at regarding the, the potential rise in inflation and the cost of living over the next year and even beyond one year. So it's a pretty uh, comprehensive survey. And according to this survey, they had uh, they, they they would report or derive indexes of consumer sentiment, uh, indexes of perceptions of current economic conditions, and an index related to expectations and future economic performance. So, as we would expect, if if the job market data appear to be strong in recent weeks, and if we would also see uh, inflation weaken as we did in the last quarter of 2022, we saw some increase in consumer sentiment, so kind of confidence in the economy. And we also saw an increase in the uh, current economic conditions index, which, which again would reflect perceptions of how the economy is currently doing. So this perception data, this qualitative 
data that we're seeing on how people per perceive the economy right now seems to reflect some of the stronger numbers we saw in terms of uh, a strong job market, a tight job market, and also reducing inflation. And now, more on the inflation component here, there still seems to be some uh, indication in this consumer sentiment survey that consumers still believe that inflation will be high in the next year. I, I, th I think that's an accurate belief. I think that's an accurate perception based on forecasts that we're seeing. Um, now, when we see, say, high inflation, high compared to historical averages. So according to a, an estimate that's derived from this survey, it would look like there's some uh, middle point or some median level of inflation anticipated by consumers who took the survey. And that number over the course of the next year would, would kind of suggest that consumers expect roughly a 4.2% inflation rate on an annual basis. Now, that would be lower than what we saw last year, but that'd still be considered high for the United States and high based on historical norms and historical averages. And that's suggesting that even if we do see improving conditions, even if we do see a the opposite of slowdown in economic conditions, regardless, it looks like consumers are still anticipating higher than normal inflation. What I find interesting to that is if we look at earlier this week, there were also some earnings reports from uh, several Wall Street or several uh, large companies, uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, one, three that I found noteworthy would have been Tyson Foods, Pepsi, PepsiCo, and also Kellogg. So as I'm sure many, again, viewers of Money Talks are familiar, uh, despite high inflation numbers and despite what we've seen with inflation numbers in the last year, it seems like food uh, categories tend to be much higher. So if, if the inflation rate were, say, 65 to 7% last year overall, uh, food, groceries, and other food products would have been uh, about twice that, around 12 to 13 percent in the last year. Uh, so the, the, these large uh, giant companies in terms of uh, food manufacturing and food distribution, uh, they reported their numbers, but each of them were, were reporting something related to cost pressures that are going to exist. So with Tyson Foods, cost pressures that still exist with respect to pork, beef, and chicken, uh, with respect to Pepsi and Kellogg's, they're still giving stories or they're still giving narratives in their uh, conference calls that price hikes are still a, a, a big component of uh, what they're experiencing right now and what would be necessary. So uh, I think based on what we've heard from those three companies, um, as bellwethers in, in, in this case on the inflation front, I think the expectations of consumers in this University of Michigan survey that inflation is going to remain higher than normal, uh, although albeit lower than last year, I, I think there's some merit to that. And I think there's some aligning in the stories we're getting from this uh, perception survey from the University of Michigan and also the reports that we're getting from some of these uh, large bellwether companies that uh, reported earnings reports this week. All right. Well, the Super Bowl being right around the corner and the conversations, of course, about the ads going into it, the money involved in that. And well, last year we had a lot of interesting dynamics, whether it's crypto, electric vehicles and the like. Um, and certainly one of the interesting side notes has been uh, certain crypto companies that no longer exist in that interval. But uh, all of that in mind, looking ahead as far as the the ads themselves as such a feature as such a part of that business um how much do do we know and how much how much do we know about how much is spent 
and um, and the extent to which they work as far as that that particular feature of our uh, Super Bowl experience. Now, numbers I've heard is that would be that a Super Bowl advertisement of around thirty seconds would cost somewhere around six million to seven million dollars, and that's a lot of money. That's that's if you think of the trade-off of having a Super Bowl advertisement, that's a lot of advertising you could do. That's a lot of other things you could do in terms of hiring and, and other uh, other types of promotions or other types of product lines that could be launched with with those funds. So that's a lot of money and there are trade-offs. I mean, economics is all about trade-offs. Uh, in terms of whether they work or not, that's something that has received a lot of discussion. I think there's a lot of debate for that, but I don't think it would be a one-size-fits-all answer to whether they work or not. Uh, clearly, if there are companies out there that are paying six to seven million dollars for a 30-second ad, and they're perennials when it comes to Super Bowl advertisements, so they tend to advertise each year. I think of some of the uh, beverage companies, whether it's alcohol or, or soda or carbonated. I think of snack companies. I, you know, they, they tend to be there every year, so that it, it probably. Would, I'm, I'm assuming they know what they're doing and it would probably pay off for them. Uh, other companies that might be more of a risk and a matter of trying to create a buzz for something that's new. You mentioned crypto companies earlier. Uh, that might be an example of where they really needed a buzz. There's probably other examples we could think of where lesser known companies spent a large amount of money on a Super Bowl ad and uh, maybe they had a memorable commercial, maybe they didn't. But uh, I could think of some who no longer advertise. Again, I, I think they know what they're doing with their money. There's probably a reason they stopped advertising Super Bowl. So one of the issues is if you wanted to ask the question, does it pay off? Actually measuring the return on investment, I think, is something that's quite messy to do. How do you isolate the effect of uh, boosted or, or or bolstered sales as a result of the Super Bowl advertisement. That's something, I, I've, I've seen attempts at that, but it's something that I, I'm not quite convinced there's been a, a clean and definitive measure of the return on asset. I think it's something where uh, the companies would have a better idea than uh, people trying, external investigators trying to investigate it and tease out the effects of other uh, potential uh, variables that might uh, impact the result. So. I'm going to assume it works for the ones who do it from year to year. And if we see companies stop doing it, it probably doesn't work for them. So I think there's a mix to the answer where it works for some and doesn't work for others. Uh, I would imagine that if people tend to consume your product or could be consuming your product during the Super Bowl, there might be a stronger argument for why they would want to advertise during it. Um, in addition to that, we would also want to ask the question on um, how important is product differentiation in your particular industry? Uh, if it, having a particular brand and brand awareness is crucial, uh, you're probably going to see them more likely to pay pony up the money each year and have the Super Bowl ads. Uh, so very interesting discussion there. Um, if I think of current Super Bowl ads, what I, what I find interesting that we're, we're seeing in recent years that I did not see when I was much younger and probably followed the Super Bowl a lot closer. Uh, it looks like pre-releases of advertisements are a lot more common. Uh, so I, I've been working all day, but I understand that you could go online and watch a lot of Super Bowl ads, or maybe they're on TV already, uh, kind of extending the time period in which they're being released. So um, 
that might say something about the potential return on investment if people are or companies are showing these advertisements before the actual Super Bowl takes place. So trying to extend the period of time in which they're being released is something that you didn't you didn't quite see in the past where they kind of made it earlier or available earlier. Another thing you're seeing more of is you're seeing some companies team up more and more on Super Bowl ads. I think that's existed in the past, but you're seeing more and more companies kind of co-brand or co-pay uh, uh, or they kind of share the expense of the Super Bowl ad. That's that's something you're seeing more and more of. So uh, it's always interesting to see these, see how the mix of companies paying for these ads changes from year to year. You mentioned the crypto companies uh, last year who may or may not be advertising this year. Last year, I think there was a trend where a lot of electric or car companies were, were advertising and promoting electric vehicles. So it's always interesting to see the mix of products and the mix of companies and how they reflect ongoing trends in both business and, and the overall economy. Certainly, certainly. And um, I think given time constraints, I'm going to condense the last question into one, um, namely the first part of it being about the holiday coming in, because usually we have holidays and, and, um, and the Super Bowl being a separate holiday in this case. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, referring in this case to, to Valentine's Day, of course, being associated with, with the consumption of, of chocolates and, uh, and cards and the like, flowers, um, does that have a significant economic impact? And rolled into that as we look ahead to the week to come, uh, are there any other issues that we're, we're keeping an eye on um, from an economic perspective? Well, I'll, I'll condense it down as well. On Tuesday, we have both Valentine's Day and the latest inflation data. I don't know if that's really the greatest compliment but, <laughs> um, or supplement uh, to each other. But uh, to answer your question, yes and no. Uh, I think in an overall or aggregated macro sense, I don't think Valentine's Day is really a big boost to overall economic performance or employment. But from a micro sense, if we look at specific businesses and specific industries, yes, it could be a crucial day, as you mentioned, flowers. If you, as you also mentioned, candy, greeting cards. Those are certain types of uh, businesses and products that would really benefit and uh, could could really uh, find it crucial on whether they have a strong Valentine's Day or not. So yes and no, but I think it's more specific to certain businesses. And I think that there's a lot of substitution of what people are spending money on and not necessarily an overall uh, net gain. Although there, there's, there, there, there could be some of that. I don't think it's as strong as we would see with other holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving. Uh, I kind of hinted at the other news that we're seeing next week. So in addition to Valentine's Day, in addition to the Super Bowl, I would say new inflation data coming out on Tuesday would be particularly interesting. So we'll get inflation data for the month of January. Uh, so we'll start to see how 2023 is looking. We'll also get information on retail sales. There was a lot of attention to the decline in retail sales that were reported in the months of November and December of last year. So we'll get the first number for January. There's actually expectations or forecasts that it will be slightly up in January, but we'll have to wait and see on Wednesday whether that's the case. If they're strong, you're probably going to hear the word or the term soft landing a lot more in the news. And you'll probably hear more discussions on whether the Federal Reserve will increase interest rates higher than expected if the number is strong on Wednesday. All right. The, uh, the romance of Valentine's Day and economic data, all, all there um, packaged uh, with, a, with a bow on top. And David Yaskevich, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your time and your expertise. 
Thank you. The pleasure was mine. All right. To our audience as well, appreciate you all tuning in. Um, and if you're here on the KFES digital channel, there'll be a link right up there in the description. You can watch Heartland News at 6, which has just begun there as, uh, as uh, the show gets underway, all your local news and content happening as we speak. Check it out there. We'll see you all later.